I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, two passages in Scripture. Uh, Psalm 2, we'll be looking at the first 12 verses. And then Acts chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 23 through 31. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation of the Scriptures. Psalm 2 is a psalm of David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You'll probably recognize that we sang this just a few moments ago. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your inheritance, or your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then in the New Testament, Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. A bit of context here. In Acts chapter 4, really back in chapter 3, you have Peter and John coming to the temple at the hour of prayer. 3 o'clock in the afternoon or so. And they meet a man who's been lame all of his life. He's over 40 years of age. He's looking for alms. And Peter looks him in the eye, says, look at me. And Peter says, gold and silver, I have none to give to you. And then he says, but what I do say is this, rise and walk. So this man is healed. And the reaction is, great exuberance on the part of this man who's healed. It draws a crowd, and Peter begins to preach Christ. This alerts the temple guards, who then find uh, the Sanhedrin, the ruling authority, the chief priest. They come, they see what's going on, uh, they recognize Peter and John, they arrest them, and then they convene the Sanhedrin, and have an arraignment of Peter and John before the council of the Jewish leadership. And in that council, they recognize that these men, uneducated as they are, had been with Jesus. And they essentially say, as they consult to one another, um, a notable miracle has taken place. Everybody knows about this. We can't cover it up. What will we do? We'll command them to no longer speak in the name of Christ. And so when they present this judgment against Peter and John, Peter and John say, you judge whether it's right to obey God or you. 
but this we want you to know. It is by the name of Jesus that this man has been healed, for there is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. And so then they released Peter and John, continuing to exhort them not to speak in the name of Christ. Peter and John, having been gone for the night, come back the next day. They uh, meet with the disciples. And that's where we pick up in verse 23 in Acts chapter 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to occur or to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, enable us to understand, but more than understand, enable us to be able to properly apply uh, the words that are contained in your scriptures to our lives as believers, uh, that we might be those faithful to Jesus in everything, that we might be bold and faithful witnesses in this world, that we might be salt and light, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, it's not difficult to see the connection that occurs between the two passages which we've read and then also the title of our message, uh, The Rejection of Christ. Uh, this theme of the rejection of Christ is a significant theme in the writings of King David in the Psalms. It's also a big theme that we find in the Gospels. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, we have John writing about what takes place when Christ comes into the world. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he writes, He, meaning Christ, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, meaning his own nation, his Jewish kinsmen, and his own people did not receive him. And then some three times in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, each one of them records this three times. Uh, we read where Jesus, as the Son of Man, said to his disciples that he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And Mark tells us that he told his disciples this very plainly. 
Well, we also remember, as we've read through the Gospels, how difficult it was for the disciples to accept this, that Jesus was saying about the coming suffering and rejection and death. They found it very hard to accept. And the reason for that is that the the disciples themselves shared the common Jewish expectation uh, of the first century uh, that when the Messiah would come, he would come as the hope of all Israel. He would come to liberate them from the oppression of their enemies and that in that liberation he would usher in the golden age within the world where peace would reign over everything and the Jewish people themselves would have a certain kind of preeminence within the world. What they didn't see and what they weren't anticipating and what they didn't expect was that the Christ would come and suffer and be rejected and then be crucified. So in the early days after the resurrection, this theme of rejection became very important to the apostles uh, in their preaching and, as we see in this passage, in their prayers. Because when Christ opened their minds to understand the witness of Christ in all of the Old Testament scriptures, they began to see how this rejection was prophesied as something that the Messiah was going to experience. Further, both in the words of prophecy and in the actual events which they lived through, they saw that their own people, uh, the Jewish nation, acted against God's own Messiah, their own Messiah, in rejecting Christ. What the apostles knew was that the Jewish people needed to see that they themselves needed their Messiah. Not to save them from the outer enemies of Rome, but from their own greatest enemy, the enemy within their own hearts. Their own hearts, which were God-rejecting hearts. Far more than they needed Christ to liberate them from Rome, they needed Christ in order to liberate them from the enemy within. They needed to come to the realization of seeing that in rejecting Christ, they were committing the greatest sin of also rejecting God. What they needed to see was what they needed to see in order to be truly saved. They needed to see that this Jesus was the stone rejected by them who had become the chief cornerstone and that there was salvation in no one else, that there was no other name given under heaven by which they must be saved. Now, because Christ had opened up their minds, the apostles could see the theme of rejection, the rejection of Christ clearly presented in the prophetic words of Scripture, and especially in the words of David. So in our main text, which is Psalm 2, this theme of rejection is presented in the first three verses. This is the section of the psalm the apostles refer to in their prayer in Acts chapter 4. There are three important truths to find in what this rejection of Christ entails. First, 
We see from Psalm 2 and we see from Acts chapter 4 that the rejection of Christ is something that was foretold. Secondly, we see that this rejection of Christ was at the same time the very rejection of God himself. And thirdly, we need to see, in a manner that applies to us today, the rejection of Christ remains the world's pattern against those who truly follow Jesus. Now, the big truth, supported by these these three points, can be stated this way. The most certain way that we can recognize whether a cultural movement or a political platform or even a religion itself is wrong even evil, is to see what that cultural movement or political platform or religion does with the kingship of Christ. For the rejection of the truth that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, rejecting that truth is the greatest of evils. It is the very evil which culturally, politically, and religiously put Jesus on the cross and executed him. In the face of the rejection of Christ, any who follow Jesus faithfully will likewise will experience this world's rejection in some manner. But the calling of Christians is to live faithfully and boldly in the face of this rejection. Now, first I want us to consider the rejection of Christ himself as we find it presented in Psalm 2 and as the apostles reflect upon it in their prayer. So this prayer that the apostles pray, they see in Psalm 2, written a thousand years before, that this stated what was going to happen to Christ. So in Acts 2, 25, 26, they quote this prayer. Remember, they quote this passage in their prayer. They say, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, what they pray reflects two important things. One thing about Christ or one thing about God himself, and then another thing about Christ. In the first place, it's very clear, since this is prophecy that's given in Psalm 2, God foresaw the rejection of Christ. That means that God was not surprised when all of the kings of the earth and the rulers conspired against his his Messiah. He was not surprised at all by the reaction of the Jewish and Gentiles' leader. That's because God is never surprised by evil. Evil never finds God unprepared. But Psalm 2 also means that God pre-planned the rejection of Christ. Note how the apostles and the disciples respond to Psalm 2 in terms of their comments on it. Acts chapter 4, 27, 28 They say this, for truly in this city, 
There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God was not surprised by the rejection of Christ because the rejection of Christ was fully contained within God's sovereign plan. Now, the second thing is this. Christ himself was not surprised by this rejection. He knew that his mission, he knew that his ministry uh, were going to face this kind of rejection. In fact, right after the very episode where Jesus says to his disciples about the middle two-thirds of the way through his earthly ministry, he says, and who do people say that I am? And then he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then right after that, right after Peter confesses this, Jesus begins to teach them. The Christ is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be put to death. So Christ was not surprised in any way at all. It becomes the theme of the last year of his ministry that as they head toward Jerusalem, he's going to face rejection by the leadership and by the people of Israel. But Christ was also not surprised because he and the Father, in the councils of eternity, had covenanted together that the plan of redemption would involve the Son of God coming into the world, suffering, being rejected, being killed by his own people, yet at the same time that these actions of evil human beings were doing this, at the same time it would be the Son of God as the Good Shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. Now the important point for us to recognize here is that God in his great wisdom and God in his great power used the evil of human beings to accomplish his great and holy purposes. Now pause and think about that for a moment. This rejection was the very means by which Christ accomplished the purpose of his coming into the world. This rejection is what actually historically and by the means of human beings led to the cross. So God used this enormous evil of human beings in rejecting Christ, bringing him to the cross, crucifying him. God used this to provide redemption. Now this is one of Peter's very first points that he makes in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. The Jews did not expect the Messiah to suffer. The Jews did not expect themselves to reject their Messiah. The Jews did not expect themselves to be the very ones who would kill the Savior that God had sent to them. And so Peter has to make this theme of rejection crystal clear to those who are hearing the message of Christ. And so Peter says on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
But the cross itself was the means by which God laid upon him the iniquity and the sin of all those lost sheep who had gone astray so that the punishment of sin would fall upon Christ in order that peace with God might be attained by faith. So the biblical perspective on the evil that was done to Christ. What the rulers of the world intended for evil, God intended for good. The greatest evil ever done in human history, the murder of the Son of God, God used for the greatest good in all of eternity. The redemption of sinful human beings from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That also means there is no current evil that's going on in this world. There is no current or past evil that has ever happened against you, that has ever been beyond the hand of God to use it for his good purposes. This is especially a comfort for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purposes, to know that God causes all things to work together for their good. You may not be able to see it now. You may not understand it before you die. But God has made his sovereign promise that he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. The guarantee that that is so is that God used the greatest evil of this world to bring about the greatest good for all of eternity. That the murder of the Son of God was the very means by which God has brought salvation into this world for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now the second truth that we find presented in this passage, both passages together, is that the rejection of Christ was also at the same time the rejection of God himself. This is what Psalm 2-3 really implies. In verse 3, uh, we read these words, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, this is the cry of these rulers of the earth who've conspired against Christ. They're crying this out. They've gathered together against God and Christ. And what they're seeking is to be emancipated from Christ. They're seeking to be emancipated from God. And you notice that it's not, well, let's be emancipated from Christ and hold on to God. Uh, no. It's very clear that what the writer uh, is saying, what Psalm 2 is saying as to the rejection of Christ, the desire to be emancipated from Christ, is likewise the desire to be emancipated from God himself. The two are necessarily linked together. The rejection of the authority of Christ is the world's rejection of the authority of God. The world desires to be free from the presence and authority of God operating in and through Christ. Now take this a bit further. Think about this rejection. 
It's clearly a political rejection. Uh, those who say we need to keep politics and religion separate uh, will find the Bible testifying against them. Because those who killed Christ did so with political motivation. There's never a separation from the things of the world and our commitment to Christ and what goes on in the world, culturally, politically, religiously, morally. There's never a separation. So this, this conflict, this rejection, is essentially political. But of course, those who act with political power always ultimately act as individuals in what they choose to do. So it's personal. And their actions are always right or wrong, so it's moral. But it's also religious because it's dealing with the rejection of the authority of God in Christ. Let's think about this religious matter a little bit further. The Bible makes it clear that the root of all of the woes in this world is essentially religious in this sense. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 through 20 uh, that it's the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, what truth are we talking about? Well, Paul says, for what can be known about God, that is to say the true knowledge of the true God, what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to those who are rejecting it. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And what Paul is describing here applies to all people at all times in all places of the world. Human beings reject God by rejecting what God has said about himself in creation, the clearly perceived attributes that God has revealed in what God has made. The rejection is a refusal to see that the created world is authoritatively witnessing to God as its creator. So in this rejection, what do people do? They make up their own religions. They make up their own philosophies. They make up their own moralities and their own meaning and purposes in life. Now, for the New Testament Jews, their rejection was even more severe than that of the rest of the world because God had given to them the scriptures. They had not only the eyewitness account of God in creation, but they had the actual scriptures themselves, which bore extensive witness to God's Christ. As John's gospel said, Christ came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Instead, the Jews created their own religion of works righteousness. They pursued a righteousness of their own based upon the works of the law. Now, the point is this. The rejection of Christ is the rejection of the truth about God. It's to hold on to a religion and a God of another sort when you reject Christ. When you reject that Jesus is the true Christ of God, when you reject the idea that Christ is God's own Son, 
When you reject the idea that, that Christ is God incarnate, it does not matter what you say about God otherwise. To reject Christ is to reject God. Now, as Christians, we can't forget this. Our culture still has a lot of God talk. But most of that God talk within our culture is Christ rejecting God talk. You find it again and again. Why do you Christians think that Christ is the only way to God? And I would encourage you never to say, well, I believe that. Let me just say something. What you believe has no authority at all. The proper response is to say, what God has declared through his word is. The authority for anything you say as a Christian must be anchored to the voice of God in Scripture. Your opinion counts nothing. Your opinion has no real status. Now, I'm glad you have the opinion that it's God's voice in Scripture. But the only authority by which we can speak in this world is Christ. And so if anyone ever gets into a little debate with you, they want to make it my belief versus your belief. You do that, you've lost. The only debate that can ever be is between those who reject God and God. If you hold to the authority of God in Christ, you have the ambassador's right to speak in his name. To not speak in his name means that you've adopted the approach of the other side. This is true when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, when Mormons engage you. Don't ever say to them, well, I think Jesus is God. They think Jesus isn't. It's a tie. (laughs) It's a tie in that debate. The only answer is, the scriptures declare that Christ is God incarnate, King of kings and Lord of lords, And anyone who rejects that is standing on the side of evil. The same evil that put Jesus on the cross. Now, lastly, I want us to recognize um, as the third truth that which speaks to our experience. The rejection of Christ remains the world's pattern against those who are Christians who want to faithfully follow Jesus. Uh, We see this in verse 29. In fact, we see the proper approach in verse 29. When they pray in Acts 4.29, this is what they say. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word in all boldness. Now, this is based upon the fact that Jesus had forewarned his apostles back in John chapter 15 and 16. But especially in John 15... 18 through 21, listen to what Jesus says. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because 
you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The rejection of Christ is the rejection of God. And the rejection of God and the rejection of Christ means those who follow Jesus are going to be hated like the world has hated Jesus. So, two final points of application. Don't expect your witness as a Christian will ever change the pattern of the world. Now, what do I mean by that? There's a certain perspective among Christian leaders, prevalent among Christian leaders, that if we would just have better conversations with non-believers, we could impact their thinking, we could tone down their hatred, and we could make them see the truth. The, the idea is that really good conversations with non-believers will change their minds. Now, I think it's biblical. I think it's right to have better conversations. I think it's biblical. I think it's good to have really good conversations. The Apostle Paul taught that. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he said, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What Paul did not say, what Paul would never say is something like this. Hey, a really good Christian witness and conversation is going to change the pattern of the world. It's not. Instead, we have to remind ourselves. There is the way of the Lord, and there's the way of the world. There is light, there's darkness. There's good, there's evil. And for our witness, and for the sake of who Christ is, there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground on the authority of Christ. And there can be no compromise between the truth of what Christ has taught, which is identical to all the teachings of Scripture, and those things which the world wants to announce and assert and claim as their truth. As James says, to become friends with the world is to become enemies of God. Or another way of putting this, there is no way given by God to make the Christian faith and the truth about Christ more user-friendly to non-believers. So don't expect your witness as a Christian to change the pattern of the world. But at the same time, remember your calling. It's the same as the calling of the earliest Christians to speak the word of the Lord to pray for the grace to speak through the word of the Lord with boldness in the face of the reality of rejection to speak the truth of God's word graciously, seasoned with salt, always speaking the truth in love, 
and then to leave the outcome and the results in the hands of God. God has not called you to change the world. God has called you to be faithful, to bear witness to Christ. Only Christ will ever change the world. Amen. Father, we would ask that you would enable us by your grace and by your mercy to understand our calling in this world in light of the reality of the rejection of your Son and to honor Jesus without compromise in all of our ways. In his name we pray. Amen. Before we come to the Lord's table this morning, we're going to be singing um, that other insert that you find in the bulletin, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Let's stand as we sing. The scripture passage that brings us to the Lord's table this morning, our customary passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. Paul writes these words, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats of the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Before we pray, and before I invite you to the table, let me just say a few things about what Paul is speaking of here. He's making it clear that when the church comes together to celebrate um, what we call the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, it's essential for those who would participate to recognize that what is presented here has a symbolic representation with respect to the gospel. That is to say, those who would partake of the Lord's Supper uh, must not only be, in some sense, part of the community uh, who gather together, but even very specifically, those who have a faith that recognizes that the bread and the wine represent by Christ's own design the body and blood of the Lord. Now, this recognition of the body and blood of the Lord is not to someone say, oh yeah, I know this is supposed to represent the body and this is supposed to represent the blood. The representation is to understand the gospel. To understand that the bread represents the body of Jesus as it was broken 
upon the cross. The wine represents the blood of Jesus as it was shed upon the cross. The essential idea is this, that apart from what Christ did and his sacrifice for us, uh, and, and the death of his body and the shedding of his blood, apart from that, there is no life. There is no eternal life. There is no salvation. So the requirement, the worthy manner of coming to the Lord's table is to come in a sincere trust and faith in Christ. If I know that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, who has died on my behalf, then I know that the bread represents and the fruit of the vine, the wine represents what Jesus did. Requirement to come to the Lord's table in a manner that is worthy is sincere trust and faith in Christ. Which means that those who don't believe in Jesus yet, and those who have not trusted in Christ yet, and those who have not made their credible profession that I am a follower of Jesus before others, should not yet come to the Lord's table. That especially is true within a covenant community of children. Uh, Children must come to that point where their faith, by which they come to the table, is not simply that of their parents, but it is their own personalized understanding of what Jesus has done. And at that point, when they understand and they trusted Jesus, and within our church tradition, uh, talk to the elders and been received as a communion member, they come and partake of the Lord's table. Since it is also not just the table of any particular person, but the table of the Lord and the table of his church, It is important to remember as a Christian, communion signifies that we belong to the Lord and to his people. We're not Lone Ranger Christians. We're not secret Christians. We're not hidden Christians. Uh, We don't live the Christian life incognito. We live the Christian life in a public way with a public commitment to all those who rightly, properly name the name of Christ. This morning then, if you belong to the Lord and if you belong to his people and you've made your profession of faith in a public way, the table is open to you. Let's pray. We ask Almighty God that you would, as your Son first instituted this table and by the presence of your Holy Spirit, set apart things that are ordinary, bread and the fruit of the vine, to that which is sacred, that here we would see signs and seals of your covenant, your covenant of grace, your new covenant with us, that in partaking of this, we might be proclaiming the gospel once again to our own souls, and that you would use this as a means of grace in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.